Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. My name is Valerie Jarrett. I'm the president of the Barack Obama Foundation and a senior distinguished fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. This is my third time at the Commonwealth Club, the first time, first two times as a guest. And now I have the honor of being your moderator in conversation with my dear friend, Don Lemon. As the club continues to host virtual events, they are grateful for your continued support of their members and their donors. In order to donate, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org to learn more about membership or support the club right now with tax-deductible gifts, clicking the blue Donate button on your screen. It's such a pleasure to welcome Don Lemon, the CNN anchor and author of the brand new book, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Joining uh, CNN back in 2006, he has been the network's leading voice on fighting racism and anti-racism. In This is the Fire, he examines very closely America's systemic flaws that keep groups marginalized and exploited. He also shares his personal experiences growing up in the shadows of segregation and asks the big and most important question of all, how can we end racism in America in our lifetimes? Just a reminder, if you have questions, drop them in the chat. I will be asking um, those questions on your behalf about 45 minutes into our conversation, and I'll be checking it throughout in case a few of them seem relevant to, to dip into earlier. So with that, Don, welcome. It's Hi, good Valerie. to see you where we're actually having a conversation, and I'm not on air. Although I'm kind of on air, but not like I am when I'm on your television show. Um, I am so terribly proud of you for taking the time and effort to write a book. Having written one myself, I know how hard it is. But your timing for this conversation seems perfect. But before we launch into the details of the book, and I've got a bunch of questions for you, and everyone who hasn't read it, go and buy this book. I don't care what color you are. I don't care how old you are. It's a conversation that we need to be having around our kitchen tables, around our community centers, in our businesses, all over America. But I want to know, Don, from you, what motivated you to write this particular book at this moment? And, and how would you reflect back on the last four years, being a regular watcher of your show? <laughs> I know that these are conversations that you've been having with guests now for years, but why now? Uh, quite honestly, a short, you know, long story short is because George Floyd was the deciding factor. I had been thinking about it over the course of the last four years, a lot of people, or five years, a lot of people asked me to write a book, right? Every time the, the former president would tweet something about me or say something derogatory about me, someone would say, write a book, write a book, you know, and a lot of people were capitalizing on you know, books about the Trump administration. I did not want to be uh, have that sort of a connection with the administration, and I just felt it wasn't right. So, Valerie, as you know, we had Charlottesville, very fine people on both sides, um, cozying up to white supremacists and racists. Not really, not really cozying up to them, but emboldening them, becoming their imprimatur, the the bigot imprimatur. And then um, we had Breonna Taylor, and um, we had. Um, um, Ahmaud Arbery, who was shot uh, on camera for us to see with a shotgun on, on a street, jogging down the street in Brunswick, Georgia. And then Ahmad, and then uh, George Floyd happened as we were in our homes during the middle of a deadly pandemic um, and in quarantine. And so we were so open and open and vulnerable and people were, were feeling empathic. There, were, there was more empathy in the world than I had ever seen. And when that happened... When I saw the video, I write about it in the book, Valerie, I closed my door and I began to cry because I could see myself in George Floyd or my young nephews or my brother-in-law and quite frankly, or even my father. And I said that I had this platform and I have to do something about it because people were calling me, asking me, what should I do? And many of my white friends, most of them, what do I do? How do I react? I don't have the vocabulary to be able to talk to my kids about this. I don't want my kids to grow up in a world like this, Don. I know you. I love you. I know you love me. Help me through this. After a lot of phone calls and emails and texts, I decided to put it into words on a book so that I could help people. Um, I could help more people than just my few friends and acquaintances who are reaching out to me. I'm curious, Don, why do you think the country wasn't ready for this moment 
when um, Trayvon Martin died and President Obama said, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, or Michael Brown in St. Louis, or Tamira Rice in Ohio, or, or Laquan McDonald in my hometown of Chicago. What, is, what was it about George Floyd's death, or Eric Garner in New York, where again, a policeman kneeled on his neck and we watched him die? Why, why do you think that George Floyd's death set off such an incredibly powerful and, um, and, and activated all this activism uh, in a way that did not happen earlier? Is it just President Trump? COVID? What did it? That is, that is the best question that has been asked of me throughout this entire process, Valerie Jarrett. A large part was denial before. People did not want to believe that the incidents happened um, in the numbers that they were happening, to the extent that they were happening. Um, and some of those were caught on camera, but not like this, for as long and as sustained a period of time. So I think there's always one incident, Valerie, that sort of is this becomes the straw that says, okay, the straw that breaks a camel's mm-hmm. back. And I think George Floyd was it. When you look at when we were all sitting in our homes, I think COVID had, had, was the biggest thing. I do think Donald Trump was the second biggest thing because people were tired of his antics and they were tired of his denial of racism and they were uh, of systemic racism. And then they were tired of him promoting racists and giving uh, racist legitimacy. And so I think that number one, during president Obama, people wanted to deny deny it. I think we were also sort of lulled into this false sense that we were living, possibly living in a post-racial society. We had elected a black president. You heard that. You'd heard that. But black people knew that that wasn't true. But I, I, quite frankly, I think that we were all vulnerable because many people during, the, during quarantine, and you have to look at where we were almost a year ago, we didn't know if we were going to catch COVID. We didn't know if our family members were going to catch it. We didn't know if we were going to have a job on the other side, what the economy was going to look like, what the world was going to look like, if our kids were going to be able to go to school, if our kids were going to catch COVID. There was just so much going on. And then we were all sitting at home with nowhere to go. And that was the only thing that we were seeing on our television screens. And not only that, no matter how many times you saw it, you could not believe the degradation of this, of, of how they were degrading this man, how they treated this man, how he literally had his life snuffed out for him as we were watching. Every single person who watched that video, no matter how many times, Valerie, and you knew the ultimate outcome, but you would talk to the television and say, hey, enough. Okay, we get it. Take your knee off the man's neck. Stop depriving him of the right to breathe, the God-given right to breathe. And I do believe that... It was because of all of those events coming together, the, the, the former president being in quarantine and our vulnerability, our collective vulnerability at the time. And I think that was the deciding factor. That's why this time was different. Well, and part of the challenge, and I think your book is intended to be a catalyst, is to not let the inflection point of last summer be just an inflection point, but rather a continuation of hard work ahead because you know, when the demonstrations slow down, you don't want to take the pressure off of folks. And this isn't just police and communities of color. They are just a microcosm, right, Don, of what is happening, the systemic racism in society. Now, police officers grow up in communities just like everybody else. And I think part of, part of what I have been optimistic about this last year is seeing the business community saying, well, wait a minute, what is our responsibility to foster a, an environment of inclusion? And, and that's where I think you begin to have um, real change when it isn't just simply focusing on a narrow issue, which is an important one, but more, um, more broadly to address the systemic nature. Well, I do think that, to, uh, yes, I do agree. And I think it's, it's also a, it's a great follow-up to the last question because it opened the aperture for systemic racism and for racism in a, in a, in a broader perspective in business, um, in our professional lives, in our personal lives. It also exposed um, how, how we live in, and operate in silos, how in, in this society and in this culture, people barely know anybody else who, uh, who doesn't look like them. Right. Uh, maybe in a professional environment, you get to hang out with a diverse group of people, but in your own personal life, that that doesn't happen. And that in itself 
is a form of racism, whether it's not intended or not. It's hanging out and being in commune with people who only look like you, therefore robbing you of really the the awesome experience of getting to know something and someone outside of yourself. So yes, I think there are many aspects of racism, of bigotry, of systemic, of, of um, unconscious bias um, that we need to, of racial blind spots, if you want to, if you want to say it that way, that we need to deal with way beyond policing. Policing is just one thing. And you're right. The book, I talk about a number of different ways that we should, that we can address it. But I also say, Valerie, as you know, I don't have all the answers. And if anybody tells you they have all the answers, walk away from them because right. they, they're lying to you. Right. And part of it is people getting, you know, in touch with their own life and their choices. And like, who do you have over back when we used to have people over to our houses? When you have company over, who are your friends? If you're running a business and all your close friends look just like you, are you are you going into your business with a attitude that you want to build an inclusive culture? Well, you don't have you don't live an inclusive life, so why would you build an inclusive culture? Uh, but look, all right, I want to jump into the book, and then we're going to come back out for some broader conversation. So you begin the book with a poem to your young nephew. Why? Why did you choose to start that way? It was, it was a letter to. Um... I started with a letter because the book is called um, This is the Fire, and it's, a, it's in tribute to James Baldwin's book and James Baldwin himself, who is my literary hero and who is um, a trailblazer um, and a revolutionary, I, I think. And no one, I, in my belief, can put words on paper the way James Baldwin did. And um, The Fire Next Time um, by James Baldwin changed my life as a young man. I read it as a young gay black man from the South. And it helped me deal with my sexuality, and it also helped me deal with racism uh, in the country as a young person, not understanding, not having uh, a deep understanding of any of those uh, two issues. And so um, having be, being at the matri- matrix of almost everything that happens in this country, every sort of um, out you know, outbreak or outburst or breaking news story every single night for two hours on television, I finally felt that after the events of the, the, the summer of 2020, that I could speak with an even um, bigger and broader authority than I had before. And so I decided to, you know, in writing this book, that it would be a tribute to James Baldwin and that I could possibly do something similar to what he did with the fire next time. But it was it was a it was it was wasn't me necessarily deciding that okay I'm going to do this. It kind of happened to me because I couldn't visit my family, I couldn't visit my loved ones. I felt guilty, quite frankly, that I was uh, had created or helped to create a world that um, was um, not deserving of my beautiful great nephews or even my beautiful nieces, and that I could have done a better job. And I wanted to show the youngest in my family, especially the ones who look like me, my great nephews, how much I loved them and that I was sorry for doing all the wrong things and that I was committing myself to doing the right things in the future. So I sat down and wrote a letter to my great nephew and started my book the way that James Baldwin started his book to his nephew um, almost 60 years ago when he wrote about the, he's, it was the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he said, we know that we are celebrating this freedom, this 100 years of freedom, 100 years too soon. And it was profound and brilliant to me. And um, it was just sort of a natural thing to do in the middle of a quarantine and, and a deadly pandemic to start by writing a letter similarly to my great nephew. So you mentioned your childhood. And so I want to go back. I always think that people are their stories. And so for people to understand you a little bit better, I want you to talk a little bit more about what was life like for you growing up in Port Allen, Louisiana in the (laughs) seventies, you are black, you are gay, uh, but you're in a loving family, but describe what your childhood was like to everybody. So um, in that letter, Valerie, I wanted my great nephew to know that he was beautiful because when I was growing up, I didn't always know that I didn't always feel that people didn't always reinforce that. My family tried to reinforce that in me, my mom and my grandmother and my, my dad and my sisters tried to reinforce that in me, but society never made me feel that way. The world didn't. Were your schools integrated growing up? My school was not integrated growing up. 
I went to an all black Catholic school. By the time I came along, my, my family could afford um, a private school education. My sisters went to a school that had just been, one of my sisters started in a segregated school and then ended up in an integrated school. Um, but the education level wasn't what my my parents wanted for me because they were, by the time I came along, they had um, better means in order they could afford to send me to a black uh, private Catholic school because that was the best education that you could get. And so um, I did that until junior high school and where everyone who everyone looked like me. But even within that, Valerie, we had um, colorism among people of color. You know, in the winter, I was light enough to hang out with the people who had so-called good hair and, you know, um, and really the people who had more social cachet in the community. And in the summer I was dark. And so I, I got to, um, I was, I hung out with the people who didn't have that same sort of thing. So Louisiana had lots of layers of racism and colorism and, and, and all those things. And that confused me as a young person and then having to deal with being gay on top of that. So I didn't feel much self-love as I was growing up, even though my family tried to drill that in me, I didn't really feel it until I became um, a young man and I had to find those things for myself. And so to answer your last question, I wanted my great nephews to feel that they were beautiful because I wrote about, I want you to have an ease about your blackness and to be able to own it in a way that I never was able to own it in a way that I never did. And so, yeah, the two are related. Well, it's interesting you say that because in the chat, somebody just mentioned that you touched on being gay and how that was central to your struggle. But there is this intersectionality. And then when you add color on top of it in the black community where there is colorism, there's a lot, a lot of different things going on here. Did your family talk about race? Did they, did you have, did they give you the talk that we all know means, well, you know, what Black parents do with their sons and now their daughters? Uh, was it overt conversation or did you have to get it kind of by osmosis? Well, uh, there was both. So where I lived in Louisiana, I lived on a main street. Um, a main was not really a street. It was called Court Street, but it was a main thoroughfare. And, and you know, the big trucks would go by and what have you. This was like you know, they were just starting to build the interstates in, in, my, in my area. And whites lived on one side of the big highway it was an elevated highway and, you know, and then the houses, the, the yards would go down um, t- towards the houses. So on the other side of the street, we would see our view was the view of the white homes. Right. And we were on the other side and never the two shall meet. We knew each other. My grandparents and my mom knew all those people, but they didn't they didn't socialize. Only if something happened like, hey, did, is your water off today or did you lose electricity too? We would holler at each other from across the way. Or maybe every once in a while someone would grow something in their garden and my grandmother would say, run this across the street for Miss Camille. Or Miss Camille would run something across the street to us. But we didn't really go to each other's homes or in that. Um, and I remember uh, play, with playing outside with my sister and we would sort of be yelling at the kids across the street like, you know, I see you over there. I see you over here. And um, and the little girl across the street said to my sister, hey, little black girl, come play. No, my sister said, hey, little white girl, come play with me. And the little white girl looked at her and said, nigger, and ran back. And then I said to her, what does that mean? And then my sister, who's five years older than me, had to explain what it meant. And that was my entree into racism. And the second one was somebody calling me the N-word when we moved to an integrated neighborhood. How so, old were you when your sister had the incident? I was probably five and she was 10. So I was pretty young, but it, it stuck out to me because I had never heard that word before. And I was like, why won't she come? And play with us like what well you know and it, but that's the way we talked back then hey little white girl right come play with me didn't really mean anything uh and we were kids and then, and then she just looked at us and said nigger and just ran away but um and then when we finally moved to an integrated neighborhood someone called me the n-word we had just moved we were one of the first black families um and you know i didn't yeah, I was just like, okay, fine. I'll go hang out with the, with uh, with these guys and start playing with them. And one of the kids said, "Why are you here with us? Why are these niggers moving in our neighborhood?" And and I went home and asked my parents, and they said, "Don't you worry about that. 
you know, and they gave me the talk about that. And um, the other experience I would have at that age, because I was sort of the first real generation in Louisiana in the 1970s where people started to interact with each other. I just remember like after a while, we would all sort of play with each other, especially in the summer because our parents would be at work. And, but then when our parents would come home or when their parents would come home, all of a sudden it would say, Billy, come in the house. If they'd see me playing and then all of a sudden Billy would disappear. And then I would wonder why. And then now I, you know, I started figuring out why it would happen. So that was my Billy go. Where'd Billy go? (laughs) Inside because his parents didn't want him playing with me. Exactly. (laughs) And so, and so how old were you when you knew you were gay and how old were you when you came out? I, I think I always knew somehow that I was different. It wasn't even, even as a young kid, but it wasn't sexual because, you know, kids are innocent and they don't know, we don't know about sexuality then. Um, But I just knew that I was different. And then as I got older, I started realizing, well, why do I have a crush on this guy instead of the kid? Um, So I think for the first time that I understood what it was, was in high school, but I never acted on it. And then once I went to college, I did, but also I never acted on it myself personally, but also you know, I don't write about it in this book, but in the book before, um, when I was abused by uh, an older family friend and neighbor, but that had nothing to do with sexuality that had to do with abuse. Um, So, you know, I don't want people to equate the two, but the two, it both did happen to me. Well, and one is traumatic and, and violent and about, you know, often about abuse and power and not sex. And, and when you're a kid, you, you have no, you don't know what it is. You're just like, okay, what is happening to me? And you know, it feels bad. That's all you know. That you know for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's go back a little bit further too, because I also think we are our stories about our ancestors. And so you talk about your uh, third great grandmother, Catherine Wood. How'd you learn about her? Tell us the story about Catherine. So two, two things I learned, two ways I learned about Catherine. I, I've done my ancestry twice. Uh, and, and the first time, um, I, I had to go to Africa, right. And, but Catherine was, doesn't have anything to do with Africa. I went to Africa and I, which I write about in the book about doing my ancestry. Uh, and then I went back to Louisiana to do some things with my mother. And I learned a bit about Catherine Woods, but quite frankly, what I've learned about Catherine Woods has not aired yet because Skip Gates has done an ancestry on me, uh, tracing my roots, where he was motivated by the first Ancestry.com and said, I, Don, I was hell-bent on learning more about you than they did. And so he was able to trace um, Catherine Woods and even beyond before her. But Catherine Woods um, was one of the first Black property owners in Louisiana. And it, it's it's weird how things are in your blood or in your DNA, because I love I love owning property, and it's always rather than investing I do invest my money diversified now. But initially, when I was doing it myself and I had no idea what I was doing, I would just buy properties because I said property is good and you can always sell it, and I did very well with that. And even still, like I go and even though I, you know I own my own apartment now, I still look at property. It's in my DNA. But um, Catherine Woods was. Um, was um, gave me uh, learning about her gave me a, a pride about myself and about my family and about my heritage that I didn't have before learning about her. And so what was that emotional journey like with you and your mom when you retraced the footsteps of, of your ancestors and went to the slave coast in Ghana? How did I've been there? It is a powerful place, but knowing that your ancestors actually came from there, what was that like? That was perhaps um, the most emotional experience, or I should say experiences that I've had in my life, because these are things that you don't even realize. You understand when there's tragedy that you're going to cry and that you're going to be affected by it, or if, if you have joy in your life that you're going to be affected by it. But I did not expect to have uh, this sort of deep emotion that would come out uh, in the way that it did, almost a wailing, like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that I'm here. Uh, we visited Cape Coast Castle, which you're very familiar with, uh, and the Obama family is very familiar with. They visited the same uh, castle in Ghana um, when they when they went there, and we had the same tour guide. But when you go down into these dungeons where people were supposed to be housed 
temporarily just for hours or maybe a day or so or a couple of days. And then you realize because sometimes the journeys were so long and they didn't have the ships that these, these slaves were captured and sometimes they were there for months uh, chained in this dark dungeon uh, with, you know, no proper toilet facilities, everyone using the bathroom uh, in darkness. Um, that became emotional for my mother. And I said I was going to hold the emotion on television. I wasn't going to show it for the cameras. And they took us out of that dungeon and into there's another sort of waiting area uh, in between the dungeons and the door of no return. And there's a sort of another temporary waiting area. And then, Valerie, we got to the door of no return, which is where the slaves went out to the slave ship never to see their continent or their people, or their loved ones ever, ever again. And to their, that their names would be changed. That really their identities would be changed and they would be taken away from their, their homeland. And when we walked through that door of return, after have been in that, being in that dark dungeon, I lost it because I realized that that changed everything, the trajectory of my life and the trajectory of African-American lives the world over. And one of the interesting things about that is as we were going through the door of no return, and I don't know if you saw this when you were there, all of these kids playing in the sea, yeah, frolicking, some of them naked, without a care in the world. And I could just imagine the trauma of those young kids or young men and young women having to go aboard a slave ship. It was, it was, it was unfathomable. But the, the part that gave me hope is when they turned us around, the guy turned us around. He said, you know, your tears are well warranted, but I want you to know this, that we've changed this door. Sorry. We've changed the words on this door of, of no return, and we changed it to the door of return for people who come here and they, um, and we share their journey and they share their journey with us. And all of a sudden it put everything into perspective about why I was there, why my life was transpiring the way that it was and what I needed to do um, when I went back to America to um, give hope to people who were like me. And um, that changed everything. That night, I, I hate to go on, but I, I think it's important. That night, my mom and I, after that experience, sat out by the sea at our hotel and we had drinks and she shared with me everything that she felt about me and what I taught her and that she was the mother and she felt that she was supposed to protect me and show me new things and show me the ways of the world when I, in fact, had done that for her. And that she was how proud she was of me. And in that moment, nothing else mattered. And in that moment, Valerie, it gave me a freedom and a sense of responsibility about my life that I would not have had without that experience. And so that's why I feel now, after having experienced all of that and seeing the um, denigration of a life like George Floyd, that I can speak with authority and I can speak with autonomy and I can speak without fear or favor. I don't really care what people think about me or how people think about what people think about what I'm saying. As long as I'm operating from that sense of being and from truth, then nothing else really matters. I'm sorry about that. I mean, no, please don't apologize, Don. Thank you for opening up and sharing such a deeply personal moment that must have been. I mean, what more could you want than for your mom to tell you she's learned from you? I mean, that's the ultimate compliment to a child is, is that you were able to help her grow. And it does give you an authority. Well, if I taught my mom, then I know <laughs> I have some things to, think, to say to other people because my mom is my mom. So, all we want is for our parents to be proud of us. That's it. For, Full stop. To know that you did a good job. And if, you, if, I, if I can leave this world knowing that my mom is proud of me, I'm good. I'm that's good. It. That's exactly right. That imprimatur is everything. So yeah. so how many years ago was that? This was 2015, 2014 and 2015 um, that we did it. And so um, that's how I've been operating in the world for the last five years. And, and people, when people say, you're so different now, you seem different in the last five years or so. That's what you're saying. You're saying a sense of authority in the sense. Um, I feel pride about, not that I didn't before, but I feel a bigger sense of pride about who I am 
and where I come from after having my ancestry done. I can't explain to people what it's like to find out these things, to know that, it, I mean, it's enough to know that you are de- the descendants of slaves. And I feel proud about that. I would, I, of course, I would rather that not have happened to my ancestors, but I feel a sense of pride about what we have accomplished and how we helped to build this country for free. But also when you can go back beyond, you know, America and find out about yourself and who you are, it just gives you something that I can't really explain to the world unless you experience it. Well, I will tell you, Skip did the Ancestry uh, program on me and I resisted it and resisted it. Yeah. And I, I have a lot of my family history because my grandmother was very good about talking to us about it, but I never really concentrated on it before. And Skip finally said to me, I'm giving you a gift. Take it. Yes. And it was such a wonderful gift to my whole family. He went back 11 generations on one um, part of my family tree and seven on another. And and it gave me a sense of place where I belong. And and yeah. and he did, of course, the DNA to say, you know, I'm X percent from Nigeria. I mean, he gave yeah. me a country to know that I came from, <laughs> yes. that yeah. country. And then yeah. he said, you know, a lot of Black people say they're Native American, but you actually are, like 5%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I encourage people who haven't done it, do it. It makes you... You, your mortality gets tied up into feeling like you are on a part of a continuum. And it and is, also, I found it comforting. Also, yes. And also it's interesting because, listen, many Black people cannot go back more than two generations because there are no records because we were property, right? Or just right. marks on the census. But I was able to go back on one side of my family as far, I think, as Scotland or, you know, like to the 1700s only because of the Caucasian part of my family, the white part of my yes. family. Was I able to do that on the black? And, and, but through that, they were able to connect the dots in a way that, well, there's a Catherine here and there's a, a Catherine there. And there's a, you know, um, uh, woods here and there's a woods there. And so if these, if this happened, then this is the probability of this happening. And they were able to do these things only because of the white side of my family and the records on the white side that they were able to match them with the records on the black side of the family that I was able to go back that far. Isn't that fascinating? It is. And I will say to your point, Skip found my great, great grandfather had a bill of sale. Yes. Buying, you know, slaves that were my. Same here. Turned out turned into being my great, great, great grandmother because he bought her and then he had children with her. And, and mine was eighteen hundred dollars. The bill of the bill of sale right. for my great 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 grandmother or, or was eighteen hundred dollars. And I said I was going to name the um, my production company when I start one eighteen hundred because that was how much the family her and her children were sold for because they were good working order slaves. So eighteen hundred dollars was a lot of money. For, yeah. Oh yeah. You had to be strong right? and young. Right. And- you know, just like an animal would be, you'd buy a horse, you buy a slave. And and that the callousness with which that happened is in a sense coming full circle to what we saw happening to George Floyd. I mean, it's just on a continuum. It is on a continuum. And and here's the, the, the reconciliation for me about my history as uh, a descendant of, of slaves is that one part of my family uh, the overseer was actually one of my great 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 grandfathers, the plantation owner, yes. and my grandmother was a slave or property on the plantation, and he gave all of the children, all of her children, which were his children, parcels of property, which is why we own property in Louisiana. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's fascinating to know it that, is. and it shows the interconnectedness that we are more connected than we are, and now we spend all these times in silos all this time um, in silos and not getting to know each other when white people and black people are connected through history way more than they understand. Exactly. So Don, what is it that you say to your friends about race and racism? So uh, I'm very honest with my friends about race and racism. I quite frankly have different conversations with my black friends about racism than I do with my white friends. And I know that black people might read this book and say, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is what, <laughs> And I was I was so proud that the New York Times, the review picked up on that. And then white people may go, oh, my God, I can't believe that that happened. Um, so I, I talk quite honestly uh, 
to my friends about racism. But what I will say is the most honest conversation that e- any of us can have is one of truth and one of knowing the entire history of this country and knowing the the contribution of black Americans or African-Americans or whatever you want to um, however, you, whatever terminology you want to use for it, um, because before the Mayflower came, which is everyone, you know, we it's sort of have, if you if you're a descendant of someone on the Mayflower, you have this vaunted history where, you know, blah, 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 blah. But there were Africans who came over to build this country before the Mayflower were here and was here. And we don't we don't before the Mayflower um, came over and we don't celebrate that. We don't learn about that in history. And I think if we learned about all of those things, and not just like, you know, the George Washington Carvers, Carvers, which are important, or the Eli Whitney's, that's important. But it's also important to understand who, all, who else, the, the richness of the people who helped to build this country. And a lot of that had, a lot of those people were African Americans. And we don't hear about it in our, in our history. It's not taught to us. And I give some of that history in the book, but I think we, we need a more fulsome approach to American history in our schools so that people don't operate on lies. And when you don't operate on lies, perhaps you don't cause insurrections on the Capitol. Okay, so let's, all right, I'm, you brought it up first. <laughs> let's just let the record reflect. So how do we get to a point where we can actually listen to one another again? Because there are two totally different uh, worldviews in our country right now. The people who, who I believe did not believe the election was fair. They've been told that by the president over and over and over again. They thought that they had no other choice than to do what a, if people had done, if people had done that in another country, imagine what we would have said about that country. Mm-hmm. And so how does it get to that point? And was that an inflection point? Yes. Is going to dissipate, or was that an inflection point that you think might change the way some people think going forward? Did that contribute to having, for the first time, more bipartisanship in the vote for impeachment for the president? What's going to happen as a result of what was a unfathomable, unfathomable? If anybody said five years ago that would happen in America, we would have said absolutely not. Out of your and mind. there's a lot that's happened in the last four we might not have predicted. Yeah. So I, I would say that it was in your question, you say, will it dissipate only if we if only if we allow it to and only only if people who have a responsibility to keep um, issues like that elevated, like me, if we fail in our responsibility to do so, that then it will dissipate and, and we will deserve it if we do, because I'm not allowing that to happen, not on my watch. So I'll do whatever I can to make sure we keep that um, to the fore, at the fore, because it is important. It is important for our democracy or republic, uh, for the republic. It's important. It's important for uh, the country. It's important for people. It's important to live to make sure that we live in a world where there's fairness and where there's equity and where there's equality. And that goes back to my point about the truth. This is all about the truth. Those people were operating on a lie, right? And much of our history has been written to elevate a certain group of people and to denigrate another group of people. And if if we weren't living in that lie, it would be tougher to denigrate people. It would be tougher to put your knee on someone's neck because then you would see someone's humanity. You wouldn't see someone as other you would see them as part of you and part of the humanity the humanity humanity in which uh we all are and so i think it's all about telling the truth it's it's it shouldn't be a surprise to us that people who are operating on a lie acted in a way that they thought was the truth right do you understand what i'm saying Uh, totally so it shouldn't be a surprise that to us that people who are operating on a lie lie about this country, about white supremacy, are acting in that manner because they think they're operating on the truth when they're really not. So that's why I say we need to be able, we need to start at the beginning and teach the real truth about this country uh, um, and the real history about this country. And, and, that'll, and people will be operating on, uh, out of truth rather than a lie. But there is also here an insidious double standard. Just imagine if the people who had scaled the walls of the Capitol and broken through those windows were Black. Mm-hmm. How many people would have died that day? I mean, I can't even imagine. Can imagine, but right? let me tell you. Yes, when I spoke, to, I spoke to a police officer who was uh, involved in the insurrection just a couple of 
days ago, two nights ago. Um, and he said to me, he said, Don, listen, the Black Lives Matter protesters came to the Capitol last summer and protested, but they didn't try to scale walls. They didn't try to overturn a democracy. They came, they protested, and they left. Now, we know that during some of that, there were people who take advantage. There are always people who take advantage of opportunities and they do the wrong thing. But for the most part, and I know people are like, oh, it wasn't peaceful. Most of the protests were peaceful. There were some things that got out, got out of hand. But listen, I'm not, I'm not making excuses for anyone. But sometimes when people just get angry, they're angry. And I don't know why they do it, but they act out in ways that are not rational. Um, they shouldn't. I'm not condoning violence. I don't think anyone, anyone should ever be violent. But I understand the frustration behind it sometimes that after begging and pleading for so long and being told to, hey, hold on, take your time, that people don't, don't always act on their rational with the, the rational part of their brain. Uh, I will quote you a quote from a column that Charles Blow wrote over a year ago. And he said, they're lucky we just want equality. We could want revenge. And I thought that was so perfect. The Black people, we just want to be treated like everybody else. But that's the fear, though. Get you back for something you did to us. We're not looking to punish you. We just want a level playing field. And to your point about when Black Lives Matter showed up at the Capitol, they showed a photograph of the armed militia that awaited them on the steps. There was no such thing awaiting the crowd that came under... Trump's um, uh, incentive to go over there on January 6th, they got caught flat-footed. And you have to say, were they just not scared because they thought it was a bunch of, you know, white supremacists and who would be harmless? Like, where were they not better prepared? Heard we all knew it. You knew they were coming. It was on your social media. We and saw that, it. Right. We saw it. But, we, but, I mean, Ron Johnson said it. He said, I wasn't afraid because he said i wasn't afraid and because i know that those people respected law enforcement and that they would not break the law and then they did and then they and then they did all (laughs) right we're going to go to a couple of the questions that are coming in in the chat because i want the audience to feel like you are a part of this as well um we'll start on a lighter note so don who are two of your heroes and why are they your heroes well, obviously, you know, James Baldwin is, is um, my hero for obvious reasons. My mother is my hero because um, she is the reason that I'm here and that my family has uh, gotten to this point. And um, I'm, uh, I always pay homage to women of color. Um, one of my heroes, quite frankly, is the former president because I can't imagine what he had to deal with in order to get uh, where he to get to, to the highest office in the land. I, I don't even want to think about the trials and tribulations of that and the pressures of that. And of course, the first the former first lady of the United States. I mean. But it's what's not to love. It's so funny, Tim and I, you know, my, my fiance is a white man. It's so interesting. I write in the book, I am a black man from the South. And my fiance is a white man from the East End of Long Island. And we were watching the former first lady. Uh, I think it was on like Kimmel or Fallon yeah. or something like that. And we were looking at her and she was with the, uh, was it Muji or whatever her. her yes. And we were like, do you remember when she was first lady and when she was first coming like into the, the, the major media and people didn't like her. We're like, how could you not like her? Like who doesn't like Michelle Obama? Like she's amazing. You know what I mean? I so do know what those you are mean. My, I gave I you four here. You know this when, because she writes about it in her book that you know, she had to deal with the same issues of racism that every black person in America deals with. And even in the campaign back in 2007, look, she's the most popular person in the world right now, but in 2007 and eight, I remember when they came after her and started making up things and putting words in her mouth and criticizing her from her attire to every word that she said to, um, she's trying to keep children when she's first lady from becoming obese and somehow it's like a nanny state. And and she just was who she is. And yeah. I think the lesson is we were just talking recently about her saying, you know, when they go low, we go high. Nobody said it's easy to go high, right? <laughs> no, I, I want to dispel anybody who thinks being Michelle Obama is an easy thing. But she also said she tried to take that hot light that comes towards her um, and push it back out to the people she's trying to serve. And I thought that was such a good way 
that and you have this too, Don. You are every night, I know, getting barraged with nasty tweets and threats and and you have to somehow not let that pain eat away at you, but put it in, yeah. a, in a place. So how do you deal with that? Where do you put that? All well, that I, anger coming at you. Okay, so I'm very honest right now. The last four or five years, I didn't even realize when I was in it. I thought it was just tough and that I could, you know, just sort of barrel my way through it and I could do it and I'm a soldier. There was a lot of sleeping too much, depression, a lot of therapy, uh, considering... Um, uh, antidepressants and all of that. And not because of, not because I was absorbing what the attacks, it was just because the attacks were so sustained yeah. that you don't know how long you can keep up the, I mean, they were just sustained and I had to look over my back and I didn't, I, look, I don't have secret service, right? So I constantly had to look over my back. I constantly had to update my security. Um, I would, you know, have to mute my social. I thought about even getting rid of social media. Uh, I had to mute the comments on my social media because people would post things that were not true. And I got tired of being called the N-word or, you know, bag and all of that stuff. And it was just so toxic that um, how could it not affect you? So I would sleep a lot, which I shouldn't have. And now... It's so weird just over the last four or five months, like it's, a, I have a whole new life. I have a whole new feeling and a whole new lease on life. And it has nothing to do with how I, my political stripes or my ideology or what political party I belong to is nothing to do with all. It has to do with the negativity, the toxicity, the attacks uh, on institutions, the attacks on, on individual people. It was just, it, it wasn't American. And so, um, I dealt with it as best I could, but I don't think that I could have dealt with eight years. Four years was enough, and I'm happy that it's over. Well, my mom, who's 92, said to me, she said, there's no way I am going out on his watch. We have got to win this election. Because this, I just cannot let this be the end. This, there has to be something better ahead. My father lived to see Barack Obama get elected, and that was a wonderful thing, uh, having grown up in Washington, D.C. under Jim Crow. Yeah, my mother was like, "I'm hanging on for dear life here," so she's in a she's and in a you, good mood right now. Well, congratulations, and you can understand that. And people think this is about left versus right. It's not. It, it was if there had been, um, let's say, a Republican had won the White House, if it had been Mitt Romney in 2016 or some other sort of sensible Republican, that wasn't it. This was uh, this was, you know, you know what I'm saying. I do. I know exactly what you know. All right, we're going to move on to a more positive note. And I have to put a disclosure out because this is a question about CNN. And I want to say my daughter is the co-anchor of the early morning show, early start on CNN. So get that out of the way, because what the person asked on is one of the things that I love about CNN is that it has people like Abby Phillips. And Laura Jarrett. She didn't say Laura Jarrett, but I know that she meant to. <laughs> Do you think she is one of the brightest? She has one of the brightest futures in journalism. And can you talk a little bit about the industry and what she might face there as a superstar young black woman who is covering, well, covered the campaign and now has a show? But what's it like inside CNN for people of color? Um, I think that. I think that Abby has a very bright future. I think Abby is living a very bright present um, right now. Um, She is astute. She is smart. She speaks very clearly. Uh, Her voice is very clear. um, And I bear... I don't know what else to say about her. And I will be looking, you know, up to her one day uh, from a very vaunted position uh, that she has in media or whatever she chooses to do. Um, What is I can't speak for all people of color inside of CNN. um, But what I what I will say very fairly is that I think that CNN, while I think it's better than most, um, is not unlike any other company. We can we can do better. We have our challenges and we discuss them, I think, in a way that's more open than any other company I've worked for. Are we perfect? No. Can we do better? Absolutely. Are we working towards doing better? Absolutely. And I think you can see that in the position that Abby um, has earned um, and how she has handled herself over the last few years with this administration. You can see it um, with Laura Jarrett in the morning, how um, Laura is building her 
uh, Bonafides as a fantastic morning anchor, and will I will someday be looking at her as well, um, just wanting, begging to be on her show one day or whatever. I'm going to tell her you said that. Like that. <laughs> so yeah, I like that. <laughs> but I think, that, but I also say, stay tuned because there are some major changes coming uh, in front of the camera on CNN, and as there are have been some happening behind the camera, uh, especially under the leadership of our current president. Uh, no breaking news. Wouldn't that President. be amazing if I got some breaking news? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's already been announced that we have scheduling changes and, and yes. anchors are going to, uh, we're going to have a more diverse um, group of anchors on television uh, that you, you're going to see very soon. And I think people will be happy about it. And then we'll I continue so on too. and do better after that. I think so too. We're all a work in progress, but what yeah. you mentioned in terms of the willingness for the leadership to talk about it and to say, we're not perfect, but this is what we're doing to try to, Make yeah. sure that we reflect our marketplace, I think, is I think is everything. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to get a little more serious again. So for the last six months, at least, I would say longer, everyone is worried about minorities having equal access to the COVID vaccines. Yet right now, we are seeing, in fact, my daughter did a show on this where, you know, we've got a pharmacy in Brooklyn, I think it was, and the people who are coming to the pharmacy don't live in Brooklyn. Yeah. We're coming from the suburbs. True. The people in Brooklyn aren't getting the access. So what are your thoughts on, on how well this is being addressed? The um, equity I, gap. Um, I think that, listen, I think the administration is trying, is doing the best job that they can, but I ultimately think it's, it's, it's on the local level because people get their shots right in their healthcare where they live. It's not the federal government. People aren't go, driving to Washington, D.C. to go get COVID shots if they don't live in Washington, D.C. They're walking around the corner where they live or driving or catching the, the public transportation. Quite frankly, though, I will say I think that just like there are food deserts in uh, communities of color, I think there's healthcare deserts as well where you don't have as many um, CVSs or Walgreens or Duane Reeds or pharmacies or, or doctor's offices where people can go where the vaccine is available. And we need to do um, a better job with that. We need to have people who um, may be in other industries, um, uh, their local doctors, um, they're even training veterinarians now uh, to be able to, to, um, uh, to sh- give the vaccine. Um, so I, I think that we have to figure it out. I think we're doing a good job. But we don't need a good job right now. We need a great job. We need an excellent job. And I'm not in healthcare. I don't know exactly how we how we um, how we correct it. But I do think having more places open and available for people to be able to get it um, will help. And I also think that there should be mobile vaccines as well. Do you know that many of the pharmacies and many of the places places that administer the vaccine? Sometimes by the end of the day, they haven't given out. They haven't administered all I of their shots, all of their I doses. Do know. Why don't they take it on the road to minority communities? Yeah, I, I can tell you at least one um, uh, company, Walgreens Boots Alliance, because I'm on their board. They are very actively looking at ways of meeting people where they are. And you have to go in there with people who are credible, who can talk and say, these are the reasons why you should do it. You just can't say, I'm here to give you a vaccine. If people are vaccine hesitant, you have to be somebody they will trust to convince right. them to do something that they might think will cause them harm. And, and we thought that this was a problem just in the Black community. And then I just read a study last week that said white conservative men are as hesitant. And of course, that's- They're number one. They're actually number one. That's stunning so, to me, but it's because their president, former president, yeah, you know, kind of made this whole thing into a hoax, even though over half a million people- our dad. All right. We're not going to stay on the vaccine because it's just hope is on the way. I think today is the day that that President Biden reached his hundred million that he wasn't going to reach for another 30 days. So hats off to he and his excellent team who are trying to get this done as expeditiously as they can. Um, this was an interesting question. I thought, what do you make of the recent business responses to the voter suppression efforts in Georgia? And our business is finally realizing that you can't play both sides on an issue like voting rights and disenfranchisement, and maybe even take it bigger. Like the polls I looked at recently, Don, show that Americans want businesses to get involved in racial justice. They want them to care about climate change. They want them to care about sustainability. They want them to be more of corporate citizens as opposed to 
hands off and young people, these young Gen Zers as I call them, they're smart, they shop their values and they wanna work in places where the company reflects their values as well. So what do you make of what's going on in the business community? I just, I lost you for a second. That's why I, I was looking oh. off or coming in here. What, what's your, give me the, your question again. So the, the question is, what do you make of the recent business response to voter suppression efforts in Georgia? And are they finally realizing that you can't play both sides on an issue like voting rights and disenfranchisement? Where businesses are saying, okay, I'm not going to do business in your state. Similarly, like when Indiana passed a law basically permitting people to discriminate against the LGBTQ community, you had business leaders like Mark Benioff from Salesforce going, all right, I'm pulling my stuff out of Indiana if that's what you're going to do. Should business be doing more of that? Yes. Is that a good sign? Yes. yes, they should be. I spoke about this with Latasha Brown from Black Voters Matter uh, two nights ago on the show as well. And they're trying to get, this is in Georgia. And you think about it, Georgia has, uh, what is it? Uh, FedEx, Coca-Cola, um, maybe even UPS, I forget, but they have several yes. huge yes. companies uh, in, in, in Georgia and they are leaning on them to, because dur- after George Floyd, all of these companies made all of these commitments about diversity and during the election, uh, all of these commitments about um, helping people with voter access and what have you. And now that the vote across the country is trying to be restricted, they're trying to suppress uh, voters mainly black and brown voters, but also poor voters as well, right, are affected by that, poor people are, as well. Um, so I think absolutely I think companies should should get involved because what do we work in, right? This is about capitalism. And sadly, many people uh, won't pay attention unless it affects their bottom lines. And when you start affecting bottom lines, I think that you will uh, get the, you will get a more favorable outcome. Because everyone, listen, this is not a political issue, right? Um, this is not this is not a um, a partisan issue, I should say. It's not a partisan issue because everyone, regardless of what your what political party you belong to, whatever your ideology may be, Americans, all Americans, should be able to vote. The electoral process should be open to as many people as possible, legally possible, right? If you're of age to vote. And I don't understand why, especially conservatives, try to restrict that. Yes, you well, do. I, do under, I do understand why. <laughs> but I don't understand how people buy into that argument. Well, so they think they believe in the nonsense that there's vote fraud, even though the head of the FBI, the head of the Homeland Security Division that does vote fraud, all these Republican secretaries of state, the Electoral College, they all said there's the no Supreme fraud. Court. What <laughs> problem are you? Are you so... Um, in so lacking in confidence about your ability to win an election that you have to suppress the vote in order to win. That is yes, not a democracy, Don. That's not a democracy. That means you're. That means what you're selling. Nobody, not enough people are buying. So you That's have right. to gerrymander and and draw the voting lines and 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 fix the voting rolls in a way um, that is favorable to you. But but Republicans have said it. Because the current way, the way things are happening, unless they restrict the vote, unless they suppress the vote in the way they do, that they're no longer going to win elections. They've exactly. said it. Right. In their lawsuits. They've exactly. said it. Exactly. All right. We only have like 10 minutes left, but I'm determined to get in a couple more questions. And then I'm going to let you also have the last, um, last word. So one question is reparations. What do you I, think? Oh, oh, I write about reparations in the book. And do I think do I think it'll happen? I'm not sure. You think there should be, but I think they do. I think it should happen. Yes, I think they should happen. I don't. I'm not sure what form they should take. If I mean, maybe it could be through education. Maybe it can be through better housing. Maybe it can be through uh, better access to health care, the Affordable Care Act. Maybe it can be in a number of different forms. I don't know. I don't study these things. Maybe it is. Um, payments. I don't know that. But I do, there is a section in my book where I write about the contributions of um, slaves in this country uh, and descendants of slaves and, and um, how they were denied generational wealth in this country while the people who they were working for were given generational wealth and have, have been able to have the opportunity to, to uh, establish uh, generational wealth over, over centuries. And so is that fair? No, it's not. 
So do I believe that reparations should happen? Yes. Do I know which form? No. Do I think it'll happen? I'm not so sure. Okay. All right. One more. This is, I'm glad we got one on the Black Lives Matter movement because people should recognize this began after Michael Brown's death in Ferguson. Right. It took a long time to get the traction we saw last summer. So hats off to those young people who did not give up. And, And, you know, so much happened so fast. You think about taking a knee was controversial two years ago, right? Well, look what had taken a knee, what it meant, especially after George Floyd. That knee became very profound. It was an interesting juxtaposition, right? All right, so here's the question. The Black Lives Matter movement showed a bright spotlight on the issue of police brutality and the treatment of Blacks. Are there productive ways to use the spotlight now? What police reforms do you think would work? And do you have hope for progress under the Biden administration? Uh, I'll start with the last one. Yes, I do have hope for progress under the Biden administration. And um, I think people should realize who their allies are and stop shouting their allies down and work with their allies in order to create that change. Now, what reforms do I, I do have a chapter in the book on policing. I thought it was important to do policing. I thought it was important to do reparations. Um, And I thought it was important to have a call of action in the book as to giving people resources as to what to do in order to fix this problem. Do I do I know specifically what police departments should do? I don't know, because, that, again, that's not my expertise. But what I will tell you um, is that, you know, people want you can call it what you want. If you want to call it defund the police, what have, what have you. I don't really like that terminology because I think it gives uh, conservatives um, it gives them ammunition um, to um, uh, to to come up with a, a very extreme counter uh, narrative or argument about what that means. Do I think that we should, we should rethink and reimagine, as they say, policing in this country? Absolutely. And I think most police officers, and especially police brass, will tell you the same thing. That doesn't mean getting rid of police departments. That doesn't mean stripping police departments of all of their funds. Uh, what it means is trying to figure out what's the best way for police officers to become peace officers. What's the best way for police officers not to be involved in dangerous situations as much as they are? Um, If there are mental health issues, why do police officers have to deal with those issues? Perhaps there could be people within in the department whose expertise, uh, who have expertise in those sorts of things. So I think that we have gotten used to, um, as we do, which is sort of the human way, we get used to things the way that they are, and we think that that's the right and only way to do them. And when someone tries to change them, we become offended by that. But there's nothing wrong with rethinking and restudying and trying to restructure things. That is innate. That is human nature. And that's called evolution. Our country, the way we operate as human beings, um, the communities we live in, all of that evolves. All of that is evolving. So perhaps it's time for policing to evolve as well. And so I don't see anything wrong with studying about how we should reshape um, the policing and police departments in this country. I think it is the smart thing to do. All right, Don, we're at the last question. And so I get to ask it because I've asked all the ones in the chat. I always like to leave with a challenge to the audience. What would you like to say to those who've tuned in and and are going to go read your book? And I'm going to give it one more pitch at the very end. But to those who have been um, enraptured by your thoughts today, what do you want them to go out and do differently? What do you want them to think, do, and act differently as a result of you having put your blood, sweat, and tears into this book? So uh, I want people to do the work. I want people to, when, when, uh, when, when people ask me, what do I need to do in this moment? And this is what I say. Listen, don't be offended. Stop being so offended by someone pointing out or the possibility that you may have a racial blind spot. Because then you make the act about yourself. You make it about yourself and your own grievance rather than the act of racism itself which means your priorities are in the wrong place. So listen. Also, get to know each other. Find a friend who does not look like you or many friends who don't look like you. Go out and meet people who are not in your neighborhood, who don't think the same way that you think. And I know people say, well, that's not practical. It's hard. No, it's not. It's easy. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. And I give this example, if you have a mom who's working and your kids are in school, in the 
the carpool line or the pickup line, there's got to be a parent, usually a parent who doesn't look like you. Maybe there's a Latino mother or a black father or, uh, or, or so on, or vice versa. Maybe there's a white family who you would like to get to know. It's easy to say, hey, Valerie, I see you, my, my son Jimmy's in the class with your Bob, and we're having a picnic on Sunday at, uh, right after church. At, we would love for you guys to come over because they always hang out at schools. Maybe they should just do it on a Sunday. So anyway, here's my address and my phone number. If you'd like to come over, we'd love to have you. Boom. Simple as that. Right? Same thing on the baseball field for little Johnny or whomever at the, at the little league game. It's so easy to do things like that, and we don't do them. Or when I go to the post office and I see, you know, Jane who lives on Main Street. I still go to the post office. I'm the I'm old-fashioned. Hey, you know, come over or invite someone to dinner or invite someone to a movie or just someone to go have a beer when, when we can do those things. It's just that simple. When you're in a relationship with someone, you, when you start to care about someone, you start to see their humanity and you treat them with dignity. And that's really the bottom line is we're, we're going to solve this. If we're going to solve this or, or make a dent in it in any profound way, it's going to be through relationships. Relationships are everything. So Don Lemon, thank you. CNN anchor, author of This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. I want to encourage everybody to pick up Don's book at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club, which I encourage you to do, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Valerie Jarrett. Thank you for sharing a part of your day with us. Uh, Take care and goodbye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 